0: This episode is brought to you in part by The Table Podcast from the Hendricks Center at Dallas Theological Seminary. I'm Daryl Bach, one of the hosts, and I invite you to join us as we discuss issues of God and culture, which includes anything and everything. Listen on your podcast app or at dts.edu slash the table. Hello, everyone. This is Chris Sterren, the host of The Truce Podcast. Welcome to season four. In this episode, I'm gonna be featuring an interview I did with Jamar Tisby. Jamar is the author of The Color of Compromise and How to Fight Racism. I don't usually do straight interviews like this, but I think it's valuable to hear from Jamar. And also I'm working on some very in-depth episodes and need some time to work on those. So without further ado, here is Jamar Tisby. One of the other things that, that draws us into using Marxism as a sort of a scapegoat, a catch-all for things is this this idea that we, we don't want to believe that there are systems at work that hold people down. Mm. Any acknowledgement that there's a system at play is, uh, is sort of Marxist in some people's minds. Can you speak to that? Why, why some of us believe that there are no systems at work? And what are some of the systems that really are at play?
1: Yes. I think this is probably the most fundamental gap in understanding between Black Christians and white Christians and how we view race is, so so Michael Emerson and Christian Smith in their landmark book, Divided by Faith, they talk about this. They're two sociologists. They did extensive uh, polls and surveys and, and research to figure out evangelical beliefs about race. And what they found was incredibly instructive. One of their key findings was that even though Westerners and people in the U.S. in general are more individualistic than in other societies and cultures. When you look at white evangelicals, they're hyper individualistic they're even more individualistic than than other folks in in our culture.
0: Right, and in some ways you could track that back to our our very beliefs where we have an individual relationship with Jesus and we have to make a personal confession.
1: Exactly. So so that was what was really interesting about the study is that they traced it back to evangelical theological beliefs, which is, you know, fundamentally it's your personal relationship with God that God saves you as an individual uh, based upon your personal confession of faith, and that you are accountable for your own personal sins, flaws, rebellions, those kind of things. And that translates into racial issues because that very individualistic way of viewing one's faith is also... Transcribed into an individualistic way of viewing race and racism, which means on the ground, what people believe is that racism is primarily a problem of feelings and attitudes of one person toward another. So it's saying the N word, it's a business owner refusing to serve a black customer, but those are individual problems. And then if that is the problem, then the solution is heart change. The solution is conversion. The solution is one person at a time. But what is absent from those conceptions of racism is any sort of systemic or institutional factors that keep people apart and keep people subjugated or oppressed. And so there's no conversation about why black people are incarcerated at disproportionately higher rates, or even before that, why the sentencing is, uh, why there are sentencing disparities between different races or the racial wealth gap, as we mentioned earlier, or uh, voting rights and how that tends to impact black people and Latinos and Latinas uh, differently than, than white communities. All of those things just don't get play because it's all about the individual. And that's the fundamental gap that we have to address if we want to come to a better understanding of how race operates in society today.
0: To think that there are no systems at play is a little bit weird when you think like slavery itself was a whole system designed to keep a people group down. Yeah. So like, how how, how, can you, how can you not see that? <laughs> that's usually where I start the conversation. And then that brings us up, up to things like Jim Crow laws, obviously, but even redlining as, as we've... Saw in the middle of the 1900s, even into the later 1900s. Can you maybe uh, explain what redlining is to people who don't know?
1: Sure. Redlining is basically residential segregation. So this comes all the way down from the federal government and um, the establishment of the uh, Federal Housing Authority. And they're creating rules for real estate brokers and banks. And basically, they come up with a system that codifies risk for mortgages and and home loans. And they essentially, the more people of color in an area, the higher risk the loan. And the areas that had higher concentrations of people of color, particularly black people, were outlined in red. And that's what became known as redlining, which on the ground, what that meant was you didn't give loans to people who were trying to buy homes in those areas. And the most preferable areas were not simply the wealthiest ones, they were the ones that were also the whitest. And to the degree that an area was white, it was you know, considered low risk and highly valued property. And that persists even today where if a black person and a white person own a home that's essentially identical, same square footage, all of that stuff, but it's in a black neighborhood versus a white neighborhood, the, that same home will be valued less than if it was in an all-white neighborhood, uh, if, if it's in a more black neighborhood or a uh, higher concentration of people of color. And so, yeah, redlining was one of the practices in the early to mid-20th century that led to re- residential segregation, which also has deep impacts on a couple levels. Number one, it has a lot to do with school segregation. So most parents want to send their kids to schools that are in the neighborhood. Well, if your neighborhood is segregated, guess what? Your schools are going to be segregated too. This is where the whole issue of "quote unquote" forced busing comes in. Uh, That came up in the Democratic primaries when Kamala Harris called out Joe Biden for not supporting busing um, because busing was was necessary when your neighborhoods were segregated. If you wanted to get to this other school, you had to be bused in, and it also has impacts for our churches, and our relationships. So even though people now are much more likely to commute longer distances to church, in general, you want to go to church somewhere that's near where you live. So it can be, so you can be part of the church community, and the church community can be part of your residential community. Well, if your residential neighborhoods are segregated, guess what? Your churches are going to be segregated. And a lot of churches actually moved out of the city to suburbs and exurbs, to, you know, ostensibly to be where their people are, but that also um, exacerbated the racial separation. And then also not just your church community, but your social network in general, the people you interact with on a daily basis, the people at your local gym or the uh, city council meeting or whatever it might be. If you are residentially segregated, your social network is segregated as well. So that leads to all kinds of issues in in our society and that was based on policies and practices uh, from almost a century ago
0: right it even makes it easier to gerrymander if you're going to pick where the electoral districts are if it's easier to like oh well we're going to keep all the black people in one area cuz they're going to vote democrat and we can draw a line around them and then we can try to get enough other white districts there that will we can get them to vote republican or something like that uh, it even plays into how we Elect our officials.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. The effects are far reaching. And I'll say this Christians put a lot of emphasis on multiracial, multi ethnic churches. And can we have a diverse church on Sunday? Can we get past this old adage that 11 o'clock a.m. on Sunday morning is the most segregated hour in America? Well, if we want to do that, if we want to see less segregated Sundays, then we have to live integrated lives Monday through Saturday. And that's the hard part, right? Because that means that means moving and changing your neighborhood or staying in the neighborhood as it's becoming more racially and ethnically diverse. That means switching your school or your kid's school. You know, we we always look at how the school performs on, say, standardized tests, what um, extracurriculars they have, et cetera, et cetera. Well, we also have to evaluate the value of diversity. and exposing our children to people who are different. And that may not show up in a test score, but it certainly shows up in how we love our neighbors. Mm -hmm. And I think that should factor into the equation of how parents are choosing uh, educational environments for their children.
0: One of the things that really struck me from your new book, Uh, How to Fight Racism, was this idea that there's a difference between crack and powder cocaine and how we Uh, Deal with that legally. Can you can you speak into that? Because that's one of those little systems that I would not have thought of, but it really does make a significant difference.
1: So a lot of times people are going to object to this idea of systems contributing to racism, and they want examples. Well, how is a system at work? You know, how 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 it's the law is the law let's say take the legal system and it, it it treats the justice is blind and you can picture that statue of of the lady and holding the scales and and she's got a blindfold over her eyes meaning the law applies equally to everyone but is that truly the case so for instance, this law thankfully due to the activism of um, civil rights activists and others has been revised but it used to be that there was a difference in sentencing between crack cocaine and powder cocaine. Under one of the anti-drug abuse acts, basically you would have these mandatory minimums for drug possession. And defendants who were found with five grams of crack cocaine had a mandatory minimum of a five-year penalty in prison. But that same five-year mandatory minimum penalty was only triggered at 500 grams if it was powder cocaine. So that's a hundred to one sentencing disparity. So what does that mean? Crack cocaine is, is the rock form of cocaine, and it's cheaper to produce. So poorer people who are disproportionately black and brown folks use the crack form of cocaine, which meant just five grams in that lower uh, uh, threshold for the mandatory minimum kicked in for having a a, a very small amount. Conversely, the powder form, which was more expensive to produce and and viewed as sort of a a designer drug, a Hollywood kind of drug, that was used by more affluent people who are also disproportionately white. But that five-year mandatory minimum didn't kick in unless they had a much, much higher possession of cocaine. And so it's so interesting that you have an ostensibly colorblind law never says black or white or race or anything. You have the exact same substance, cocaine, just different forms, crack versus powder. And you have this huge difference in the uh, mandatory minimum and when that kicks in, such that more black people, more people of color are in prison for possessing a relatively small amount of cocaine versus uh, more affluent and white people who had much more cocaine but aren't in prison. And so that's the way, that's how systems and laws can function, even apart from explicitly race-based language, can still function in racist ways.
0: Yeah, we don't like to believe that there are systems at play, but those things do crop up. um, And it it makes our reality is our experience is very different to the point where you talk about in your book about the talk that black and brown families have with their kids. Uh, And this, I've heard it talked about before, but it breaks my heart every time. Can Can you tell me what
1: the talk is? The talk refers to the conversation that black parents and other parents of color have to have with their children, specifically around surviving encounters with the police. Surviving encounters with the police. I use that language advisedly. For many white people, police are still seen as, you know, first responders, people you call when you're in trouble and need help. They're seen as heroes. In black communities, especially, police are often seen as an occupying force. Some would characterize it. They are seen as a force of intimidation, of surveillance of brutalization even. And we can think of the dizzying numbers of cell phone videos showing unarmed black people being brutalized, even killed by police officers. Uh, And those are just the things that we know about, right? So, So the conception, just the conception of law enforcement and policing is very different depending on your community and your experience. So the talk is The conversation we have with our kids about surviving encounters with the police, you know, if it's if you're being pulled over hands at 10 and two, they're always visible. So they don't think you're reaching for a gun or a weapon. Uh, Always have your ID and insurance readily available available not even in the glove compartment if you can help it because you don't want to be reaching over and be perceived as as trying to get a weapon always saying yes sir yes ma'am being as polite no matter how unreasonable you know the the uh detaining is now i know there are some people listening and they're just like well that's just what you do that's just how you interact with police its authority that's just what you do i would tell my kids who are white the same thing i understand that but the risk isn't the same the risk of you know a a white teenager being belligerent to a police officer isn't the same as a black teenager Doing that because there's the assumption of threat, there's the assumption of violence, and there is the assumption that you're going to need to use force. Listen, you don't believe me? Just talked to a black person, especially a black man. uh, Although black women are being incarcerated at astronomical rates, but uh, every black man I know has a horrific story of an encounter with police, and these are church folks these are pastors these are accountants these are people with college degrees in other words they are the people who you think are doing all the things that society tells us to do to be a good upstanding member of society right um it's not it's not people who are caught in in a drug deal or or a shootout or something uh not that that would even justify the brutalization that often occurs i just want to to signal to people that we have all these stories, and it's not because we were doing something wrong. It's because we're black.
0: Yeah, I you know I live in Western Wyoming, and I I drive a school bus when I'm not making this podcast. And a, a large portion of our community, something like forty percent, some people predict, is uh, Hispanic, and uh, so a lot of the kids on my bus are. And when I see a police officer go by, it's the Hispanic kids who stand up. And go, police, police, police! It's not the white kids. Wow. Uh, if, if I'm driving up a, a group of kids that are um, white, largely white, they're not going to even notice. It, it's one of those things that has become very obvious to me
1: uh, that they're they're attuned and they're looking for the police presence. And can we talk about some of the history? Um, there's a yeah. there, <laughs> There's a great article by Carrie Lee Merritt, who's a historian, and it's called "One Continuous Graveyard." on the Black Perspectives Mm. blog. And she talks about the origins of the police force and how before the Civil War, not many communities had a standing police force. They didn't have a line item in the city budget for police. What they did was um, anytime, you know, someone broke, broke the law such that they had to be detained or something, they would form a posse. And, you know, One neighbor would call up the other neighbor and say, get your gun, let's go after this person. And usually it was white people going after white people because black people were enslaved and ostensibly under control. All that changed after the Civil War. Now you have millions of free black people wandering around, which made a lot of white people nervous. And this is when you start getting standing police forces. And you also start getting the black codes, which are laws essentially designed to entrap black people, especially at that time, black men in the carceral system. And so you had these these really frivolous vagrancy laws, like if a black person was out and about in public, any white person, oftentimes not even a law enforcement person, any white person could basically ask them for their papers, which would be documents showing that they were gainfully employed by a white person. And if they did not have those documents, they could be thrown in jail. Once thrown in jail, you would be fined. But since you were a recently freed black person who probably didn't have much money, you couldn't pay the fine, and now you're in prison. And they also came up with these convict leasing laws, which was uh, what one author called a fate worse than slavery, because under convict leasing, a the state or a private individual could lease your labor. They would make these arrangements with the state. And they would get incarcerated men to come out and work. And they were doing things like picking cotton or mining under horrendous conditions. And if you died on the job, no problem. We can just get another incarcerated person to take your place. That's how it was worse than slavery because you didn't, quote unquote, own your labor. So you could literally work them to death and it wouldn't make a difference on your bottom line. So anyway, all of that is part of policing where black bodies, and I say that term on purpose, black bodies merely being enfleshed in this chocolate skin made you eligible for surveillance and control of your body through incarceration. And that's sort of the root of a lot of policing in the United States. In the 1960s, you get the foundation of the Black Panther Party, but they were originally founded under their full name, the Black Panther Party for Self-Defense. Self-Defense against whom? Against police who were coming into Black neighborhoods, roughing people up, extorting people, doing all kinds of unethical things, Mm. and were seen, again, as an occupying force and not a force to, to serve and protect. And then you get to trace that all the way up. You can remember The Rodney King beating in Los Angeles in the early 90s, uh, Oscar Grant, Amadou Diallo, and then, of course, Trayvon Martin. Many people have called this current generation of activists the Trayvon Martin generation, uh, because even though that wasn't a law enforcement officer, it was the same habit and practice. This was a neighborhood watchman was self-appointed sort of guardian of the neighborhood, decided that this black teenager in a hoodie coming back from the convenience store looked out of place, ended up in a fatal encounter, and he was completely acquitted under the stand your ground laws. And so all of that (laughs) goes into the talk. And I just need people to feel the weight of that because policing does not function the same way in different communities.
0: Right, it's it's easy for white folks like myself to say, well, you know, as long as you're not being creepy or suspicious, then they're not going to pick on you. But it doesn't work the same way for white folks like myself as it does for really anybody else. It's really a shame, and there are no there are no good words. There are no good words uh, to express that. This all can fe- feel very heavy. Um, one of the things that I appreciate about your work is that you bring these important facts, but then you also try to help us address how we can do better which I think is super helpful, including you know, your new book, How to Fight Racism. One of the things I really appreciated about that was the racial biography. kind of helps us figure out how we
1: perceive race. Can you, can you maybe speak to that tool? The fact is we all have a racial history, whether we've paid attention to it or not. But the racial autobiography is a way to pay attention to your own racial history. And so what I encourage people to do is to write their own racial autobiography. What does that mean? That means asking yourself questions like, what is my first memory of race? When did I first notice color as a difference? When did I start attaching meaning to that? It's asking yourself, what are the formative experiences I had around race? Was I ever called a racial slur? Did I ever use a racial slur? Do I ever remember some sort of pivotal event, whether in the news or in my own life, that started to change or shape or form my perspective on race? And I just think writing this racial autobiography is critical because how can we sort of work on these external actions regarding racial justice if we're not being self reflective and understanding our own history? of race. So I, I think this is especially this is important for people across the racial and ethnic spectrum. So for black people, it, it, it might not jump out as something important to do because we live this every day. We're thinking about race and dealing with it whether we want to or not, because it's constantly being, you know, brought up in various different ways. So why do I need to do it? It's because you have those formative experiences that have shaped your current outlook. And if those experiences go unexamined, then you may be missing opportunities um, to strengthen your identity, to refine your practice. And I think it's also especially important for white people because so much of the issue with racism and white supremacy more broadly is invisibility. So the way these things get perpetuated is by telling the group in the majority, in this case, white people, you don't have a race. You're just normal, You're just individual. You're just Chris or Joe or Karen or whoever, right? And they it, it trains you not to think in racial terms or at least not to think of yourself in racial terms. So writing your racial autobiography is going to force you to identify and recognize that as a white person, you have a race too. and 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 here's how it works itself out now that you are consciously thinking, about yourself in these racial terms, what new might might you uncover in your own story when you go back and say, oh, you know what? My experience here was probably different because of race. Or you know what? I probably treated that person differently and I didn't even realize it because I was unconsciously acting in these racialized ways. So I just think that's an incredibly powerful practice. It's also low-hanging fruit in the sense that absolutely anyone can do it. You don't need specialized training. You don't need to go through a course. You don't need anything but the time to, to sit down and, and write this thing.
0: I'll have more with Jamar Tisby after this short break.
2: God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Cat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform.
0: One of the other things I thought was important that you brought up was for churches, local churches, to be able to address uh, the racism in their congregation, in the history of their church, their denomination, and in their city. Can you maybe uh, flesh that out for me
1: a little bit? Oh, yeah. Uh, It's so important. You know, As a student of history, I am a big advocate of looking back in order to go forward. So one of the flaws or one of the mistakes I see is that people especially white Christians and even whole congregations they suddenly realize you know from from some current event or something that's happening oh racism is a present problem and a persistent one and we need to address it and so immediately they start looking ahead they start looking for it what are we going to do differently in the future obviously that's good obviously that's necessary but i think the first step, once you start to come to this realization that racism is an urgent issue in the present, is actually by looking at the past. So you, you've got all this baggage with you around race, and and you're trying to move forward, but you're carrying all these burdens of the past that, that are unexamined. And so what congregations can do is look at their own history and figure out the ways, honestly, they probably missed it in the past. Um, maybe occasionally you'll find some encouraging stories of, of you know standing for racial justice. But unfortunately, uh, the broad swath of white Christianity in the U.S. has been a story of compromise and complicity. And so the question is, how has our church uh, cooperated with injustice, with racism in, in our local community? So how do you do that I would look back at uh, the minutes of elder board meetings, or you know, church deacons, whoever the the church leadership is in in your particular tradition. Look back at those meetings. See see what they're talking about. When did they, when did they decide to um, relocate the congregation, and what was the reasoning there? Or was there some big event, racial event in your city? You know, may, maybe the. Uh, unjust killing of a Black person by law enforcement. Did your church discuss it? Did it come up anywhere? Did they make a statement? Did they show up anywhere people were talking about this? I would say this is especially critical to churches founded um, on or before the 1970s. You're almost undoubtedly going to have some history you need to unearth. And there are stories of churches that in the seventies, and that's not that long ago, y'all. This is, yeah, th- folks are still alive who 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 were making these decisions and affected by them. Uh, but there are stories of churches that realized, hey, we, you know, the leadership at the time wouldn't allow black members. Or uh, churches in Memphis, there was a, a kneel in movement, kneel in, uh, where where integrated groups of black and white worshipers would go to these big downtown white churches and try to come in on a typical Sunday to worship, and most of the time, they got turned away. And so there's a story of, of one church realizing that they did this, actually tracking down that integrated group of worshipers who were, who were college students at the time, and trying to make amends and say, hey, we were wrong for this, and we want you to know that we finally realize that, and we want to do whatever we can to repair. So that's, I think, the basic principle here is you're looking back not just to look down on the people who came before you, you're looking back to garner a sense of humility about what your congregation has done and has been implicated in, but also to make repair when possible. I really think we are too hasty to move forward once we've realized, perhaps for the first time, how urgent an issue racism is, we don't look back at the trail of traumatized people that our congregation may have produced. And What are we going to do about that? You can only do something about that by by looking back and trying to, to make repair where possible.
0: And another good place to look would be if your church has a private Christian school that started in the 60s or 70s, yeah. that school may have been started to get around integrating schools.
1: Watch out. Chris. <laughs> Watch out. <laughs> Am I opening up a can you of worms? Get angry messages. Yeah, buddy. You know, we were talking about segregated schools before. Yeah. But in general terms, because of residential segregation. But man, Christians were so involved in this. Yeah. The 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 private Christian school movement and really just the private school movement. I live in a town, it's widely known. This this school started in 1971, 1972, right about the time. When uh, the federal government was going to, to force the implementation of Brown v Board, which had happened you know almost 20 years prior, but schools were still segregated. And it's right around that time, 1970, 71, 72, when it became readily apparent that public schools were no longer going to be able to circumvent federal regulations around segregation, that you get all these segregation academies cropping up. And so in our town, we've got a school that, that was created expressly for the purpose of creating a separate school for white people as the public schools were becoming uh, racially desegregated. That school still exists today, and it's still over 90% white in a city that is 75% black. Wow. And I got to talk to my church members about that right? Like that's a reality in our community. That's a reality in the history of uh, the school district. And that's probably a reality in places a lot closer to home than we might think. That's true.
0: Well, I liked your emphasis in the book uh, as well, that this this is something that leadership should take on in a church, that pastors can get in front of a church and explain these things. Um, it's I mean, it's good to have it, you know, grassroots and But to have leadership address these things carries a lot of weight.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely essential. Has to be leadership on board with it. My slight caveat is just that if the leadership isn't speaking out about it, it's oftentimes the laity that brings it to the fore. And so what I encourage people to do is, you know, if your leadership isn't already on this, which they should be, they're late if they're not. Um you we have a priesthood of all believers you know you have the holy spirit and you have the ability to organize others in the congregation it could be as simple as a book study it could be as simple as requesting access to those minutes and those records or going back and talking to board members of the private school or whatever it might be my my point is you don't necessarily always have to wait for the leadership and when you do take initiative sometimes that's when the leadership starts To notice, I will say they may not always be happy that you're doing these things, and so don't expect that just because you're doing um, these things toward racial justice that that the leadership will automatically get on board. Right.
0: (laughs) Well, I like it. I I like your book because there were a lot of really practical things that could be done, and I appreciated that a lot. I think one of my convictions through this COVID time, through the Donald Trump era, um, through discussions of, of racism. Uh, one of the things that's hit me the most is that white Christians like myself, were so unwilling to sacrifice anything. Mm. It's been really very convicting to me. Our time, our money. It's hard for us to recognize that maybe where I built my house impacts people, or um, how much land I take up or how much money i i I make can impact other people. Um, and uh, And I think that this book is really helpful to see some practical things that we can. Sacrifice in
1: order to make some steps, well, Jesus, I, th- I think we have <laughs> thank, thank you and <laughs> and I think we have a wonderful example in jesus who who tells us to take up your cross daily and and follow him. And so, what does it look like to take up your cross daily on this journey toward racial justice? as we follow Jesus? This is not simply you know a sociological or a cultural or even a historical um, imperative. I think it is all those things, but but fundamentally, it's, it's also a, a Christian imperative as we work to love our neighbors as ourselves. And we have the example of a Savior who laid down his life for the sake of others. And so what does it look like for us to lay down our lives, our comfort, our status quo for the sake of others? So we have every reason to do it.
0: Thanks to my guest this episode, Jamar Tisby, and to his team at The Witness, who helped me arrange the interview. Here's how you can find out more about his work.
1: I've got two books. Uh, my latest one is called How to Fight Racism. That is available wherever books are sold. The first one is called The Color of Compromise. I also started a brand new newsletter, so you can be an early adopter, an innovator. It's on Substack, and it's called Footnotes, and you just go to tisby.substack.com. So I'd love for you to follow and subscribe to that newsletter
0: truce is a listener supported show if you'd like to be a part of what i'm doing here consider giving a little bit to help out you can learn how at trucepodcast.com donate once you're there you'll be able to learn about my novel cradle robber and my movies bringing up bobby and between the walls god willing we'll talk again soon i'm chris Darren, and this is truce